Hi friend, you're listening to a London Lyceum exclusive episode that is typically only available to subscribers. If you want to have access to all of our exclusive content, including Kiffin's Keep, Generally Particular, Typology by Immersion, The Hanover House, and all of our live stream content, consider joining for just $5 a month. Not only will you be getting access to all of this content and more, but you'll also be supporting and investing in an institution serious about thinking. So why not go ahead and click the link in the description now and enjoy all of the exclusive content directly to your mobile device or wherever you listen. As always, we're thinking about new ways to get you thinking, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Kiffin's Keep, an intellectual resource for the pillar and buttress of the truth, which is the church. This is a project of the London Lyceum, which is dedicated to serious thinking for serious church. I'm Jordan Stefaniak, president of the London Lyceum and host of Kiffin's Keep. And I want to remind you before we get into the video to go ahead and hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, and also leave a comment if you think this was good or if you think it was bad and you have a reason to object to it or anything in between. I appreciate your feedback. It definitely encourages me, helps me, and helps develop future videos to be more useful for you. Today, I want to talk about confessionalism and confessions in general. So given my own context, this is a discussion that seems to flare up what seems like every single year with uh, vehement, strong opinions on uh, where confessionalism should sit in Baptist life in particular. But this could this could be applied to any denomination, Protestant denomination in general. Uh, so confessionalism is not just something that Baptists struggle to deal with and understand. It's also something that other denominations uh, work through as well. So hopefully this can be a useful resource, no matter your doctrinal convictions or commitments. And since the London Lyceum is committed to promoting something called confessionalism, it seemed good to me at least to try to lay out an organized and somewhat reasoned defense explanation of what it means to be confessional. I don't think this is the end-all be-all on confessionalism and confessions, but hopefully it can at least be a start, which reminds me before I forget, a good resource before I even get started is Carl Truman's The Creedal Imperative. This is a fabulous book on uh, creeds and confessions and their uses in the church. I I highly recommend this. Uh, I mean, it's just fantastic. So it's got the classic, you know, what if no creed but the Bible is unbiblical, which I totally commend because I think it is unbiblical. No creed but the Bible is a creed in itself, and it's not a good one. So before I start this, I should remind you that I want to discuss this with a smile on my face. Uh, I'm maybe not, maybe that's metaphorical. The idea is too often for whatever reason, when we, people talk about confessions and confessionalism, what seems to come to mind is sort of a grim dead exercise in dying precision religion or something. So people who are just hypersensitive to doctrinal precision and have no life and zeal in their orthodoxy. But that's not what's supposed to happen. Confessions and confessionalism are supposed to be life-giving to our zeal for the Lord. So this is supposed to be something that's useful and good for the life of the church and the life of the individual Christian. So let me give a brief overview of what I think of as confessionalism. So that simply starts with what is a confession? Well, a confession is sort of like a statement of faith. Uh, Some are longer, some are more robust than others, which might be shorter and thinner and 
These can be differentiated from creeds. I typically think of creeds as those things like the ecumenical creeds that have been affirmed by all Orthodox Christian denominations, whether Roman Catholic or Protestant or otherwise. Uh, And those have been given sort of conciliar codification. That doesn't mean as a Protestant that those are inerrant, uh, though they are time-tested and approved throughout history, the history of the church. So I think creeds are on a different level of authority status. If you were to try to think of some sort of hierarchical authority matrix, maybe you're totally not into the idea of any sort of external authority. And that's fine. We can talk about that in another episode. For now, I'm going to assume that's true. So if you don't like that, just pretend that you can still listen to this and like me, even though you don't like it. I'll maybe defend that in a later episode. If you have questions about that and you don't like it, drop a comment below so I know that I should prioritize something like that. So creeds, I think, are above confessions. Confessions are more... uh, So creeds might be like first-tier sort of issues. Trinity, incarnation, atonement, and then you have confessions, which are typically broader and more robust and are usually more utilized at a denominational level or an individual church level, and they're going to be more specific in their claim. So they might be covering things like second-tier sort of issues, so the mode and nature of baptism, who can hold the office of pastor or elder, those sort of things can be found in confessions. Uh, I think of confessions as just simply public documents that are enforced by some sort of institution in some way. So whether that's a local church or that's another institution or something else, and they're designed to fulfill several functions. But before I do that, I should remind you and everybody who's watching or listening, I'm talking about confessionalism, I'm defending confessionalism, but at bottom, every single person is confessional. I think Carl Truman is absolutely right in his book. Every single person is confessional. The question is, what sort of confessional person are you? Is your confession private and internalized that no one can examine, no one can scrutinize, no one knows exactly what it is? Or is it public and written down and available for all to examine and understand if it is consistent with the scriptures or not? So that, at bottom, I think is the issue. Every single person is confessional. The question is, is it public or not? Is it available to be scrutinized or not? Is it a standard that can actually be looked to and examined and disagreed with or agreed with and used to profit? Or is it inside some group's head and no one knows what it means or what's really important and what's not important? So let me talk about some of the ways that confessions are useful and can be used and and prioritized in the local church and at denominational levels and other, other levels of institutions. So I think they're designed to guard fundamentally the good deposit. So you, you find this in, in First and Second Timothy, in Jude, this, this confession of the faith, holding fast to it, defending it, that is ultimately the purpose behind confessions. I think that's the primary purpose designed to protect our doctrine. You go to the Nicene Creed, it's designed to protect the fact that the Son is of the same substance, the same essence as the Father. And so that there's no room, there's no wiggle room whatsoever to say the Son is of a different substance than the Father. And it's also designed to protect churches from imposing their own personal interpretations on members or protect protect churches from denominations, uh, the denomination imposing their own personal standard on them. So it's actually a tool to protect freedom of conscience 
because you are not allowed to impose privatized judgments on others. It can also be used to promote unity. So this is a very common forward-looking positive thing that confessions do, is it promotes this agreement among those who, if it's a local congregation or a denominational level, to say we are all pulling in the same direction. We all agree at these fundamental points, whether that's as simple as a confession of the Trinity. Maybe it's a Sunday morning service at your at your church, and it's it's you quote, the Nicene Creed together, the Apostles' Creed together, or maybe your confession together. You say it out loud, and it creates this sense of unity. We are all confessing this same truth. We're all pulling in these same ways. But it also serves as just a simple time-tested pedagogical tool to teach people sound doctrine in bite-sized chunks. You don't have to go find a big, giant, 500-page systematic theology textbook to understand the basics of the faith. You can go to a time-tested creed or confession that can give you, in bite-sized chunks, what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be a Baptist, what it is to be a Presbyterian, what it is to be an Anglican. So there's all sorts of confessions out there. Anglicans, typically, you're going to receive the 39 articles. You'd have uh, American Presbyterians, typically, confessing the Westminster Confession of Faith, etc. So I think the confession should also limit potentially members in your church. So some churches are going to be different on this. Maybe to be a member, all you need to do is confess the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. But to teach or be an elder at that church, you need to confess something that's a little bit more thick and robust. Or maybe the church is consistent. Something, say, the New Hampshire Confession of Faith for a Baptist church. If you want to be a member, you have to confess that. If you want to teach, you have to confess that as well and teach consistently with it. So those are things that are supposed to be used for it. Um, Why should you be confessional? I I think I probably have given you some ideas of why I think you should be confessional already. But let me lead with this B.H. Carroll quote. This is a great Baptist. He founded uh, Southwest or helped found Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He says this, and it's very strong. Uh, It's probably stronger than I would say, just because I try to be nice as much as I can. But he says, you just might as well proclaim yourself a simpering idiot as to stand there and say, oh, let's not have any dogmas, creeds, and confessions of faith. Let's just have religion. How can you have a creedless religion? You had just as well adopt as your God a jellyfish floated up on the beach that has no backbone, merely a pulpy mass, as to say, I want a religion without a creed. A man cannot have a religion without a creed, and the religion is... And the religion he does have is not worth anything unless it is avowed. So that's very strong language, but I think it is exactly spot on for why you need a confession. If you don't have a confession, what is there? What are you agreeing on? What are you saying? What are you uh, agreeing to as a church, as an individual member of something or a denomination, whatever it means? And fundamentally, like I said at the beginning, everybody is confessional to some degree. It's whether you want to be a privatized confessionalist or a publicized confessionalist. And I am promoting and encouraging having a public standard of teaching, standard of doctrine that you can go to, that you can use, that you can test and say this teacher is teaching out of line with the confession that we said we all agree that this is what should be understood as sound doctrine and you're teaching not according to it. So it can be used as a tool to protect, but it can also be used as a tool to unify, a tool to teach. Creeds or confessions, though, they're not inerrant. That's not the claim. It never has been. But they certainly carry more weight than our own individual interpretations. 
They certainly carry more weight than me and my friend. So there is and should be a deference to these creeds and confessions as time-tested understandings of the faith. And if we are to depart from them, we must have a very solid biblical theological reason to do that. So I think insisting on the relevance and value of confessions is not to impose uh, an individual opinion on anyone else. It's not to be uh, restricting anybody's freedom. It's actually to protect the unity of churches, to protect their own cooperation together as a local church or a denomination as they confess the faith together. So there's some objections to confessions and creedalism, and oftentimes I think they are objections to things that are not confessionalism or creedalism, and they're usually more, uh, I don't know what the word is for it. A lot of it's existential sort of stuff. So there's sociological stuff going on. I went to this confessional church, and they wielded it like an iron with an iron fist, and they were just jerks about everything. And so they don't like sort of like the aura about that. I don't think that is connected to confessionalism as what it's supposed to be in any sense. That's just an abuse of authority in whatever church or whatever denomination you're in, and it's not necessarily linked to confessionalism. So let's think. I've heard oftentimes that confessions or using a confession as a standard of faith restricts Christian freedom in some sense. And this is particularly, I think, poignant for Baptists because of the liberty of conscience that they want to, and religious liberty that they like to say, this is one of our distinctives. Whether it is what it means, not really going to talk about that, but I do think this is a objection. So I heard recently somebody say, abusive people always want to tighten the rules and their relationships. That increased measure of control in the name of unity and responsibility gives them the momentary sick thrill of more security, more power, but it never ends well. I think this is dead wrong, and it's, it's very foolish. This is not what confessionalism is about. This is not the design for it at all. Having a standard of teaching, a standard that we that we look up to and we judge and measure our teaching against, is not something that is simply designed for a sick thrill of power, not designed for a sick thrill of security. It's actually designed to protect and serve the weakest members of the flock or of the de- denomination so that those with power can't wield their own private judgments over them in any sense. They have a public standard that they can recourse to and declare, no, this is not what we agreed upon. This is what we agreed upon here. And it's been proven and we all signed to it and agreed to it. So I think the problem here is simply, again, is just they have a misunderstanding of confessions or confessionalism. They've been given, painted a picture that was unhealthy for whatever reason. Maybe they had a bad experience, which I understand bad experiences can jade you. But that's fundamentally uh, not what confessionalism is doing or is about. It's a faulty uh, objection. I think another objection in uh, my own context often comes down to this idea of cooperation and mission. Confessionalism, I think, can somehow prohibit or or stunt, or not allow the extent of cooperation for the greater good that you could have otherwise. So let's just take an example, uh, and it's going to be a free state 
or not free state, free church tradition, just because I think it's these sort of questions become more complex for them. When you have a more hierarchical structured church government, it makes sense to have a confession because there's more top-down authority. But when every church is sort of autonomous, how do they all work together with a confession? What does that look like? Is it just at the individual church level? Is it at some sort of denominational cooperative level? What Just help me understand how that works. So I want to take that as a sort of an example. So let's say we want to cooperate to fund missionaries. A great goal. That's something that I think most churches should want to do. Your own local rural church doesn't have enough money to fund a missionary themselves. But say 10 churches together do. But then you have to start asking yourself, who is this missionary you're going to fund? What do they believe? What do they teach? And what are they going to fundamentally build and disciple wherever they go? If this person denies the deity of Christ, I would say, no, we, heaven forbid, we do not want to support uh, that missionary. So there has to be some boundary, some confession that we say, yes, these are the things that matter. So there is a greater good that we want, but we do have to have some sort of litmus test where we say, you must confess the Trinity. You must confess the deity of Christ. But when you don't have clear boundaries, don't have clear explanations, well, then you don't really know where to stop and when to stop. Everybody would say, I think, rightfully so, if you deny the Trinity or deny the deity of Christ, I don't want to support that. I don't want to contribute my funds to that. But it's not clear if you don't have a standard that everybody is given. So let me give a, let's let's take the SBC, for example. There's all sorts of debate and discussion on like, well, we're not a confessional denomination. We're not a denomination. We're a, we're a cooperation of churches that are cooperating together, giving money for institutions and, and for missionaries and everything. So take this as my own opinion. I don't speak for anybody else. I speak for myself here. So if you don't like it, you can get mad at me, but don't get mad at anybody else. Get mad at me. I think you have three basic options. So you can either say when it comes to Baptist life, and this could be applied to any other denomination, other context. This is just simply a, a test case scenario example to show you how confessionalism is really necessary. Everybody ends up having the need for a confession and a public confession and a consistent one. So you have options. You can enforce what the, the Baptist faith and message 2000, which is the Southern Baptist Convention is supposed to, they have this Statement of Faith, Confession, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. You can enforce the entirety of it on all churches to say, if you want to cooperate with us to build institutions, to do missions, you must affirm the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 in its entirety. That seems very simple, makes sense, understood. But there's people who want to push back and say, no, 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 no. I, I don't want to do that because I disagree with X, Y, and Z. Fine. That's cool. I understand that. Uh, there are parts of the confession that maybe a lot of churches don't agree with, and they fundamentally say, I want to reject that. And so I want to cooperate still. I still fundamentally agree on the basic things. So I I would be fine funding a lot of things with Presbyterians or others and saying, yes, let's partner together. So I, I get that impulse. So there's a second way you could do this. You could enforce the entirety of the Baptist Faith of the Methodist 2000 for cooperation, but you revise it so that more can cooperate. I think that is a very wise and standard approach that you should go for. Or you could just say, let's remove the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 in its entirety and have nothing but privatized judgments. So, personally, I don't see how enforcing an unidentified 
part of the Baptist faith of Message 2000, whatever it is, deity of Christ, Trinity, male-only eldership, I don't know what it is, uh, can be the basis for any sort of consistent, transparent, honest, and friendly cooperation. It doesn't even have to be a denomination. Cooperation is built on trust, and the currency of trust requires transparency. And if you don't know what is the real basis for this cooperation, what are the the guardrails, so to speak, where you can say this person or this church is out of line, if you don't have clarity into that, then there is no trust, and then there can be no true cooperation. So again, I think enforcing an unidentified part of any confession simply lends itself to powerful individuals and groups to only enforce whatever they like, their own pet pleasures, their own pet doctrines, and to ignore those they find unseemly or they find uh, unhelpful or even just simply unimportant. The Baptist Faith in Message 2000 and any other confession is not inerrant. They can all be revised. So if that's the pathway for a denomination or a cooperation of churches, that's fine. But you should pursue that and not pursue a vague, undefined, privatized judgment on what matters that can be based upon the loudest and most powerful groups. That's a recipe for division, disaster, and distrust. The point of a confession is assisting with transparent cooperation. So enforcing a confession for membership and an association is not a violation of Baptist principles either. So if you're a Baptist, I mentioned free church. Um, This is not an inquisition to say you must submit to this standard of teaching or else you are not part of the association or you cannot cooperate with us. This is simply consistent with historic Baptist practice and principle. No church is required to be a part of this. No church is required to give their money to the cooperative program. No church is required to be a member of an association. They may depart at will and remain a faithful gospel-preaching church. Lord, The Lord bless you and keep you. That's fine. When it comes to those things, that's totally acceptable and understandable if that's something you're not comfortable with. But fundamentally, when you allow confusion like this, simply for pragmatic purposes, it will ultimately fold and fail because the pragmatic center cannot hold. The privatized confessionalist judgment, where no one knows what actually matters and no one knows who gets to make those decisions, breeds distrust. So even from a pragmatic approach, if you think trust is necessary for cooperation, you should promote public confessionalism. So I say that as an example of why confessions matter and how some of these things can be worked out in real life. There's lots of confusion about how this really gets practiced, how this really gets worked out, when you get to have an exception, how big of an exception you get to have. Those are all really good questions. You can even just simply look at the the way the Nicene Creed was developed and standardized. And the realization that the Nicene Creed in 325 was at that time simply a little bit too vague to really get at what the intent was supposed to be. So then further councils will say, here are some standardized texts that we can say these are faithful interpretations of what was supposed to be said there, what was supposed to be confessed there, what was supposed to be confirmed there. 
And so then you you can develop that and you can say, these are faithful interpretations. These are unfaithful interpretations, but you must have an explicit, clearly, publicly identified confession. When you don't do that, you are just simply reverting to a privatized form of confessionalism. And that only hurts people. That only damages people. That only gives people with power more power. If you want to protect and guard churches, institutions, individuals, you will seek to promote a public confessionalism. And I think confessionalism is good. And you can do it with a smile on your face. You can do it cheerfully and say, this is exciting. I am glad hearted that I get to confess these truths with these brothers and sisters together. And I can also see and be confident and not be anxious or not be full of, I mean, I guess I said anxious. I don't know what the other word is. There's a word uh, insecure. That's it. I don't have to be insecure about what other people believe differently because I know what I believe and I know exactly where it differs from the church next door. And so we can bond and share brotherhood or sisterhood over these shared principles, whether that's something as simple as the Apostles' Creed or that's something more robust after that and say, we agree on these fundamental principles. That's why I can have a lot of camaraderie with Presbyterians because we agree on so much. While we disagree on things like the mode of baptism and some other aspects, we know where we disagree and we're not insecure about those things because we know why we believe it and where we believe it, but we have the shared common confession together. So for all these reasons, I think confessions are great. Confessions are good. Churches should begin to use them more. They are great tools. Institutions should use them more. These are things that can only protect you, guide you, and serve you in all sorts of ways. So if you have thoughts, comments, questions, disagreements, agreements, drop a comment. I'd love to hear from you. I appreciate it when you guys do that. I can't always get to them super quick, but I try my best uh, to engage with you guys because it's a lot of fun. I enjoy doing this. Hopefully this is useful. If you found it useful, let me know. I love the encouragement because sometimes just talking to a camera can seem a little bit discouraging because you don't actually immediately see anybody that actually pays attention to it, cares about it, thinks it's useful. Anyway, this has been Kiffin's Keep, and uh, thanks for tuning in and thinking with me. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.